Hi everyone, this is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week we're doing an archive show. This one was first broadcast on June the 18th in 2018, and it's a Boomer Boulevard show that I think you're going to enjoy. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. Chester, remember remember last winter in January when we were going out to the car and you had to put on two sweaters, an overcoat, a scarf, earmuffs, a hat, boots. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. Remember how cold it was? And you said at the time you would rather have the heat of summer than to have this bitter cold. That's what you said. You remember that? All right. Well, I just wanted to remind you because you're paying for it now, buddy. Yes, you are. Hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to Boomer Boulevard. Welcome to St. Louis, Missouri. I am recording this on Sunday, the 17th of June at about 6 p.m. And it is 98 degrees outside with a heat index of about 104. Ah, your kind of weather, huh, Chester? Yes, sir. I wonder if, if, if the ideal temperature is like 68 degrees, or say 65, would you rather have it 30 degrees hotter than that or 30 degrees cooler than that? Would you rather have it at 30 degrees outside or 95 degrees outside? Hmm. I think I would rather have it at 30, but you have your, everybody's got their own opinion. Well, welcome to Boomer Boulevard. This is the show where we play old-time radio programs and some songs that we actually remember from when we were kids because we're baby boomers. But everybody's welcome and everybody loves these great old radio shows. And tonight we have three good ones. We have an episode of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. We're going to follow that up with a Jack Benny show that was very funny and a really unique episode of Gunsmoke. Along the way, we're going to play some music and hear a couple comedy cuts from Andy Griffith from way back at the beginning of his career. And we're just going to have a lot of fun. So we're glad you came along. Make yourselves comfortable. Get situated because we are going to get started in just a minute.
Okay, to start things off, we are going to go back to May the 23rd in 1950. We're going to listen to An Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, this show was produced and directed by Norm MacDonald, who, of course, went on to Gunsmoke fame, among others. You almost wonder if this show wasn't a trial run for Gunsmoke, because uh, three of the main guest stars on this one tonight are Howard McNear, Parley Bear, and Georgia Ellis. And there's a few others along the way, too. So here's Gerald Moore as Philip Marlowe, and the name of this episode is The Fox's Tale. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison or an early grave. There's no other end. But they never learn. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. With Gerald Moore starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's transcribed story, The Fox's Tale. Sometimes when the phone just never should have been invented. Hello, Marlowe speaking. This is Orrin Metcalf. You remember me, don't you, Marlowe? Oh, sure, Barrister. What can I do for you? And meet me here at the Blue Chip Bar at once, Marlowe. Huh? Look, I can hardly hear you. Speak up, will you, Orrin? Uh, the Blue Chip Bar. Yeah? It's a miserable cafe on Melrose, near La Brea. Melrose, near La Brea? Yes. I'm in a booth, the last one on your right as you enter. But uh. be careful, Phil. We can't afford to be seen. And please hurry. I'll pay you handsomely. To do what, Oren? To impersonate a dead man. The blue chip was an indelicate assortment of stale smells, surrounding pictures of Lady Godiva, some without horses, and featuring low lights, lower clientele, and the lowest grade of bar whiskey. Against that backdrop, my new client stood out like a Dresden doll in a police lineup. Orrin Metcalf, in spite of the electricity in his voice, was only five and a half feet tall. Couldn't have weighed more than 130 pounds, including the glitter of honorary fraternity pins that dangled from his watch chain. He was maybe 50, bald, wore glasses halfway down a long nose, and at the moment was as nonchalant as a five-inch firecracker with a sputtering fuse. Quickly, Sit down, sit down, listen carefully. It's going to be hard in here, but go ahead. I am representing a man named Kuvion in a lawsuit. Uh, Rudolf Kuvion. Yeah? He's a manufacturing chemist. Hungarian-born, at present fill in a sanitarium. The nervous system will take just so much, you know. Yeah, I know. And look, this Rudolf Kuvion is suing or being sued? Which? He's suing. And nobody less than his former employer, the eminent Justin Shepard. Justin Shepard. He, uh... Turns out cosmetics, doesn't he? Makeup, lipstick, that kind of stuff. Uh, yes, stuff, Marlowe, which includes a new and revolutionary nail polish that's worth a fortune. Which was invented by your client and stolen from him by Justin Shepard, huh? Exactly. We're suing for $250,000 in damages, Marlowe, but we'll settle out of court for $150,000 in cash. Hello. Not a cent less. Now, the trial, Phil, has... Um... Oh, wait, wait. What? What's the matter? Oh, wait, John. Oh. Um, uh, some brandy, please. Cognac. Cognac? 
the kid and pop. Like I said, what'll it be? All right, Junior. Two beers. Skip the chatter. We gotta catch a train. Okay. Be anti-social. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that awful? You were talking about the trial, Oren? Oh, yes. Now, the whole point, Phil, is that every witness we had at the outset has so far either been bought off or frightened away by Shepard and his crew. Mm. With one exception. You're racing the hole, huh? Yes, a man named Max Redman. Mm. He worked with Rudolph Cuvion years ago in Chicago when Cuvion first perfected the lacquer base which makes the nail polish formula so valuable. Mm. Redmond's testimony could have swung everything our way. And Justin Shepard found this out. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean, could have, Orange? Huh? Two beers is ordered. 30 cents, gentlemen. Hey, uh, we're even. Thanks. Ah, now, Marlowe, the dead man I spoke of, and Max Redmond are one and the same. Shepard murderer? Hey, worse. He drove Max Redmond to suicide, Marlowe. The man shot himself an hour ago. I don't follow that. Well, Redmond was staying here in L.A. with his wife. I'll tell you the address in a moment. It's nearby. And although neither Shepard nor his cronies ever got to see Redmond, they knew where he was and where he came from. With that, they went to work. Black man? Oh, yes. Years ago, Redmond got in a jam. I have no idea what it was, something that he was conscience-stricken about. And Shepard uncovered it, then got through to Redmond on the phone. He struck home. His blackmail price was Redmond's silence, huh? Right you are. Mm. Shepard told him to get out of town. But when I talked to Redmond an hour ago, he was positive that Shepard would demand more in the future. Redmond was really hysterical, said he wished he'd never heard of me or Rudolf Kuvion. And then he hung up. Well, when I got to his apartment, I found him dead, shot by his own hand, his pistol at his side. Oh, it was awful. Yeah. Tell me, Oren, what about Redmond's wife? Well, her name is Louise. Uh, she's out of town right now. He was afraid for her and made her go away. Mm-hmm. At any rate, Phil, you see what I'm getting at, don't you? The reason I want you to work for me? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Shepard and his buddies don't know Redmond's killed himself, and if I give the impression by posing as Redmond that he's still alive and not leaving town, Shepard will figure that his blackmail angle didn't work, huh? They'll get together with you and settle before tomorrow morning when Redmond would have taken the witness stand. Precisely, Phil. Yeah. A hundred and a half settlement as against a court award of a quarter of a million means a saving of $100,000 to Shepard. He'll pay it as long as he thinks Redmond's still alive and willing to testify. Well, now, will you do it, Marlowe? Poses Redmond, huh? There's a thousand dollars in it for him. I don't know. A thousand dollars, Phil? And Rudolph Kuvion? Helpless in the sanitarium. And Max Redman. It's an awful lot to turn down, isn't it, Arnold? Huh? Thank you. Thank you. Now then, here's the deal. Oh, wait a minute. How about... No questions. Every minute counts. Now, I've got Redman's top coat right here. Now, you put it on when you leave. And here are the keys to his apartment. It's the Garden Court Apartments on South Ogden. South Ogden? That's right. Now, you sneak inside. And a minute later, very obviously, go out again. Get into his car. It's a new green Nash. Drive up into the Hollywood Hills along Lookout Road. Why there? Well, Redmond drove up there a lot. Now, later, return to the apartment. You'll probably be followed as Redmond always was. And the man will be big and muscular and in a black coupe. Now, once they know that Redmond... Well, that's you, of course. Yeah, sure. ...doesn't intend to leave town, there may be an attempt in your life. So watch your step. Getting killed as Redmond destroys the illusion we're out to create. That's not all it destroys. Eh? May destroy me.
played his outline. A minute after I drove Redmond's car out of his garage and conspicuously signaled a left turn with a plaid sleeve, I picked up my escort. His headlights stayed in my rearview mirror all the way along Sunset Boulevard and then up into the hills along Lookout Road. I drove slowly until I cleared a hairpin turn and spotted a flat open lot about 100 yards ahead and to my right. It overlooked the city below and was dotted with cement bags, piles of lumber and bulldozers that had gone to bed hours ago. I swerved off the road sharply, cut my lights and parked close to the edge of the cliff. Then I piled out of the car and quickly set up the oldest trick in the book. I took off the plaid coat, tossed it over a shoulder-high board jutting out of a lumber pile, topped it with my hat and ran for cover behind the bulldozer. I got there just as the black coupe pulled in, cut its lights and ground to a stop. Then I saw something big and beefy get out and start toward the coat, an ugly snub-nosed gun in hand. I reached my 38 and slowly moved through the ankle-deep weeds until I was only a few feet behind him. When he fired at the coat, I was only inches away. What the... Does that make it my turn? Don't try it. You're not Redmond. I'm not a lot of people. Drop your gun. Go on. What are you going to do? I'll ask the questions. What's your name? Gaffney. Earl Gaffney. Working for Justin Shepard? No, no, no. I I was just... You're just a liar. That's nothing compared to what's in store for you. No, quit. I... I worked for Shepard, all right. And you were tagging me, thinking I was Redmond, to see if I was going out of town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I had orders to knock you... Uh, I mean, knock Redmond off if he didn't go straight for the airport. That's all honest. I, I don't know anymore. Get up. Oh. Walk over to that tool bin there. Open it and get in. Go on, go on. Keep moving and keep your hands open. All right. I want to have a little chat with Justin Shepard. His home address, what is it? He ain't got one. He stays in the hotels. Right now, it's the uh, Bigman Plaza in Beverly Hills. Now, quit, will you? That's all I know. Sure, sure. You see, Earl, I believe you. You've got such an honest face. For a killer? <laughs> Sweet dreams, Buster. dozen gladiolas and one dozen golden iris. Yes. And deliver them here to the desk of the Beekman Plaza Hotel. No, it's not in Santa Monica. It's in Beverly Hills. It has been for years. Goodbye. <sighs> stupid, stupid people. Yeah, they're just everywhere, aren't they? Indeed. Oh, <clears throat> uh, may I help you, sir? Yes, I was looking for Mr. Justin Shepard. Is he in? Oh, yes, sir. <laughs> you could almost reach out and touch him. No, really? Yes, that's he over there, reading the paper in the Louis XIV chair. The Louis XIV. Mm -hmm. yeah. You see him? The short, round man uh -huh. to one side of that woman wearing that stunning taffeta. That what? Uh, stunning taffeta. You see, it's uh -huh. applicated with those bright red roses. Oh, yeah, couldn't miss him. <laughs> yeah. Turn right at the stunning taffeta. Uh, uh, Goodbye. Uh, you're quite welcome, sir. Welcome indeed. Goodbye. Mr. Shepard? That's right. My name is Philip Marlowe. I'm a private detective. I know. Uh, I've heard of you. Oh? What's on your mind, Mr. Marlowe? A chemist. What about him? What does he have to do with me? Earl Gaffney. Who... 
who, uh, who is Earl Gaffney? A louse who missed, like the rest of them will. Max Redmond is still alive, and I intend to keep him that way. Good night, Mr. Shepard. See you in court. The effect was great. The fat man's mouth fell open and his chins jellied all over his chest. I let it go at that. The illusion was established. As far as Justin Shepard and company were concerned, Max Redmond was very much alive and kicking up the kind of trouble that they didn't want. But 20 minutes later, when I let myself into the dead man's apartment and walked into his bedroom, I knew the illusion was only an illusion. Max Redmond's body was sprawled at a crazy angle across the bed. I wondered what he could have possibly done to take this easy way out. I stopped wondering when the front door closed. It was a woman the deepest brown eyes I'd ever seen. What are you doing here? Who are you? My name is Max Redmond. You're lying. Where is Max? Tell me, where is he? He's in the bedroom. You a friend of his? I'm his wife, and I'm going to speak to him. Don't try to stop me. I won't, Mrs. Redmond. Go ahead. Redmond's dark, troubled eyes stared at the bedroom door for an instant. And she darted past me and inside. When she saw him, she froze, her eyes on the gun at the dead man's side. One hand trembled toward her mouth. <laughs> Hang out of yourself, baby. Max. Oh, Max. Max. Why did you do it? Why? Your husband had proof that a fat buzzard named Justin Shepard swindled a fortune from Rudolph Kuvian, an old friend of his. Max was going to offer that proof tomorrow morning in court. He wouldn't kill himself because of that. Well, there must have been something in his past that he couldn't live with any longer. What? You know what it was, Louise? I don't believe any of this. You were in here posing as Max. You're responsible for his death. But you won't get away Louise, with it. Louise, give me that gun. Little fool, let go. I said let go. That's better. They're smart enough to give in fast anyway. Now sit down over there and listen. Who are you? Why are you here? I'm Philip Marlowe, hired by Oren Metcalf. You know him? Yes. He found Max like that. They couldn't let Shepard know that the case against him was dead, so he hired me to keep up the illusion that Max was still alive, that nothing was wrong. Metcalf is sure that Shepard will crack before morning. But we'll need your cooperation, Louise. How about it, huh? When you took that gun away from me, you smashed my only picture of Max. You couldn't even leave me that intact. I'm sorry. I know it's going to be tough on you, baby, but... Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Louise, did, did Max write that on the picture there? Yes. To my Louise. With love. Louise, listen to me now. This backhand script... Was Max left-handed? Yes, but what is that? He was shot in the right temple. You mean that someone killed him? That's the general idea, yeah. Justin Shepard, the man Max intended to testify against. No, not unless he's a lot slicker than I think. But he has an assistant, a tough one named Gaffney, who was watching this place when I took over. If he did it, then followed me, he wouldn't have had a chance to report to his boss. I don't understand. Followed you where? Oh, to that lot on Lookout Road where Max liked to go. I caught Gaffney there and filed him away in a tool bin. 
I better go and have another chat with that boy right now. You wait here. Here. Now, look, baby, we can't quit. You've got to finish the job Max started for his old friend, Kovian. And better than that, maybe we can get Max's killer, too. Are you game? I'll do as you say. As I went out to Redmond's car, several things bothered me. And not the least of them were Louise Redmond's dark, deep eyes. When I got in the car, I felt the pistol that had killed Max. It was in my pocket where I dropped it after I'd taken it away from the girl. I pulled it out and looked at it. It was a Belgian Browning 765 automatic. I broke it apart and then, on a hunch, I slipped it back together, got out of the car again and took the gun up to Louise. I don't know much about guns, Marlowe. All you may have to do is point at Louise. The threat will probably be enough. In case it isn't, that's the safety catch there on the side. I'll be back as soon as I can. When I pulled out onto the vacant hilltop lot, I centered the tool bin in the headlights. I was out of the car and wading through the foot-high foxtail grass before I noticed that the, the stick I'd shoved through the hasp was now on the ground. I ran the rest of the way and jerked the lid open. Gaffney was gone. I started to close the lid, but stopped at something in the bottom of the bin. I liked a coiled rattlesnake better. It was a glistening, sticky puddle, and it was blood. The scream had come from a hollow beside the lot. I ran toward it. Saw two kids in a parked car, scared stiff and staring into a tangle of brush in front of them. Mister, mister, there's a man down there. He's hurt. Bad. Where? Show me. In that brush. We both saw him. He stood up just a second ago and he started toward us. There was blood all over him. And then he fell down again. Okay, get your girl out of here. Get back to your car. Okay, mister. Oh, hey, holy cats. You're Philip Marlowe, the detective. Yeah, I've yeah. seen your picture lots of times. All right, be a good fan and stay out of the way. The guy's dangerous. Go on. Yeah, okay. Come on, Gaffney. Who did it, Gaffney? It's, it's a fray. Yeah. I, he knew I, I'd spill and... Who, Gaffney? <laughs> Who knew? Who? Yeah. Hey, Mr. Marlowe. Hey, Mr. Marlowe. Did you, did you, did you find him, Mr. Marlowe? Yeah, I found him, son. He's dead. Holy cats. Now, look, do me a favor, will you? Get to a phone, report this to the police. Oh, yeah, sure. Tell them I'll get in touch with them as soon as I can. Okay. Sure, Mr. Marlowe. Yeah, right away. My next stop had to be Justin Shepard's hotel. And now I had more to go on than a couple of hints from left field. Just as I pulled up in front, I saw Shepard behind 16 cylinders of imported limousine swinging away from the curb. He seemed in no particular hurry, so I tailed him far enough to realize that he could be heading for Max Redmond's apartment. And I took off through the side streets, wide open. I got back to the apartment in time to brace Louise for Shepard's visit. But, Marla, what, what can I do? Maybe I'd better... Huh? Maybe you'd better let him in. Go ahead. Yes? Stand aside, young woman. I'm coming in. Please do, Shepard. What? You again. Nice of you to drop in. What have you got in the bag, lunch? Don't be facetious. And don't worry, it's all here. I know when I'm beaten. I suppose it would be quite pointless to ask where Redmond himself is. Completely pointless at this late date. Very well. 
Then I assume I'm to leave this with you. That's right. It had better be right, my boy. Believe me. Good night. Just a minute. How come you're running your own errands? You took care of that yourself earlier tonight. You're a competent man. You should be working for me. Working for you has its drawbacks, Shepard. But you muffed it. Gaffney didn't die right away. Gaffney's dead? Marlowe, be careful. Hey, he lived long enough to tell me he was framed, Shepard. By you. When you can prove that, I'll be at my hotel. But I advise you not to push your luck. Marlowe, you let him walk out. Yeah, the guy was right, baby. So far, we've got no proof of any of it. Except this bag. And whatever is... Money. Why, it's... It's filled with bundles of bills. Big ones. At least a... At least a hundred grand. Oh. Holy smoke. Excuse me, will you? Who are you calling? Somebody will be very interested in this. You just wait and see. Metcalf speaking. All right, this is Marlowe. I'm at the Redmond place, and get this. Justin Shepard walked in here, dumped a hundred thousand bucks on the table, and left again. Not a half minute ago. At Redmond's? Yeah. Why, it's a bribe. We've got him, Phil. We've got him. Don't touch it. I'll be right there. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. There's more. Uh, go on. Louise Redmond came back. Louise? In the middle of this mess? Yeah, she's here now. Oh, it must have been rough on her to find Max. Worse than you think. Because that's still not all. What do you mean? That you can bet your briefcase on the fact that Max didn't kill himself in the first place. He was murdered. Sit tight, Phil. I'll be right there. Come on in, Aaron. The money, Marlon. Where is it? In the bag there on the table. Yes. Excellent. Ironbound evidence. Best in the world. We'll have this impounded right away. And oh, oh, Mrs. Redmond, I, I can't tell you how sorry I am, my dear. Thank you, Mr. Metcalf. But I'm grateful to you and to Mr. Marlowe here that Max's death wasn't entirely without purpose, at least. What about that, Phil? Can we prove he was murdered? Well, the bullet entered his right temple, but he was left-handed. That's about all we got. Uh, simple as that. And yet it went by me completely. I doubt we can stick anybody for it. Why not? Well, because his killer may be already... Already what, Phil? Hmm? Oh, already dead. Another killing? Well, what are you talking about, man? One Earl Gaffney, Shepard's gentle assistant. What? I locked him in a tool bin, but somebody found him there and shot him. Uh, to keep him quiet. Justin Shepard himself. Surely. Now, look. If we can't get him for Max, we'll nail him for Gaffney. Don't count on it. Uh, listen, we've got that fat lizard right where we want him. Now, first, first of all... First of all, it won't fit, Oren. Why not? If Shepard sent Gaffney to get Max, then killed Gaffney. Why did he bring all this dough here? To bribe a dead man? Well, yes, you're making sense, Phil. I knew you'd see it. Go on. Okay, try this for size. Max Redman never intended to testify in court. He wasn't after a legal settlement because then the money would go past him to Rudolph Kuvian. This bribe here is all Max was after, but somebody was in it with him. You're crazy. How dare you say oh, that? She's right, Marlowe. Now you're talking like a fool. Am I? Max, no doubt, got into a beef with his partner over the split of the bribe and was shot. Uh, that's a guess, Soren, but this isn't. Gaffney got it because Max's killer couldn't figure how much Gaffney had heard and seen in here. He couldn't take a chance, you see. But whoever killed Gaffney had to wade through the same weeds I did in that vacant lot to get to him. 
And most of the weeds up there are foxtail grass. You know the kind that comes off on your clothes, that sticks in your socks like little darts? That's right, Aaron. Take a look. Your argyles are loaded with the stuff. I don't have to look. You're a bright boy, Phil. Thanks. It uh, went just as you outlined it. Up to this point. I'm sorry you got so much of it right because you can't think of everything. You might be surprised. Don't reach for your gun, Aaron. I'll drop you. It was a filthy scheme. Come on, hand it over. Your gun. Why, sure. Here you are. Now you drop it, Marlowe. Go on. Well, uh... <laughs> the heartbroken little wife. With the very same gun you so generously gave me. That's what I meant, Marlowe. You can't think of everything. Louise and I are going away tonight together. And we're taking that money with us. Stand still, Marlowe. I know more about guns than I pretended. Sure you do. Sure. I had a hunch about you early tonight, baby. Your homecoming was too pat. And you know what? You didn't bring back so much as an overnight bag. And what's more, when I took that gun away from you, you practically handed it to me. You were acting all the way. I'm not now. I'll kill you, Marlowe. Louise, shoot him. I... Shoot. 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 I can't. Shoot. The gun, Oren. It... Shoot. It won't fire. Oh, Poland. I took one of the parts out before I gave it back to you, sweetheart. <sighs> you couldn't make that go off with a blow. Oren, help me. That's right, Oren. Help the lady. George. Believe me, sister, you'd get the same thing right now, but for one good reason. I'm going to need you intact in that court tomorrow morning. By the time the police showed up, Oren Metcalf, dynamic barrister, and Louise Redmond, beautiful dreamer, were already coming apart at the seams. Two hours later, when I finally got away from it, they were still screaming hysterical insults at each other. Now, before I went home, I stopped by the sanitarium just long enough to shake hands with Rudolph Kuvian, who turned out to be a nice, quiet, thoughtful old guy. And I assured him of a fair shake that was long overdue. I guess it made him happy. It was hard to tell. Because the look on his face said that maybe the real price and things other than money have been much too high. Well, that's the way it is with some characters. They're human. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and are written for radio by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in tonight's transcribed cast were Howard McNear, Lou Krugman, Rick Vallon, Parley Bear, Georgia Ellis, and Hugh Thomas. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. <laughs> Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... This time there was a fish that talked with a lisp, a hot blonde with cold cash on her mind, and a corpse with dirty French cuffs. And I mixed with them all without ever getting out of my own bed. This is CBS, where Burns and Allen are heard every Wednesday night, the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is Roy Rowan.
That was The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, The Fox's Tale, from May, back in 1950. And like I said, that was sort of a precursor to Gunsmoke. Big, big role for Howard McNear. We heard uh, Parley Bear in there. And Georgia Ellis. Georgia Ellis um, was very big in radio, in Hollywood radio. She made hundreds of appearances on radio shows from, oh, the mid-40s to the early 60s. But she really didn't do much else in her career. She did have a number of um, credits on Dragnet, the television show, for appearances on there. Maybe, maybe a dozen, something like that. Other than that, she has very few screen credits. Uh, she was un- had an uncredited role in the 1941 uh, Cary Grant, Irene Dunn movie, Penny Serenade. But most of her work was on radio. She was uh, married to radio writer director, producer, Anthony Ellis, who, among other things, did Frontier Gentlemen and a number of other shows. Uh, After they divorced, uh, I think she went back for a short time using her, I guess it was probably her maiden name, I think it was Georgia Hawkins, if I'm not mistaken. Um, But for the most part, professionally, she was known by Georgia Ellis. She was very good. She only lived to be 70 years old. She died in Woodland Hills in... um, I believe it was 1988. Don't take that to the bank, but I'm pretty sure it was 1988. Georgia Ellis. Very interesting. Tap, tap, stitch and tap, making a pair of shoes. Le scarpine per ballare, ballare, balleremo tutti il dì. Le scarpine per ballare, ballare, balleremo ancora così. In the shoemaker's shop, this refrain would never stop As he tapped away, working all the day At his bench, there was he, just as busy as a bee Little time to lose, with the boots and shoes But his heart went pop inside the little shop With a lovely girl, set him all the world She had come to choose some pretty dancing shoes And he heard her say, in a charming way Shoes to set my feet a dancing, 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 dancing all the day. Shoes to set my feet a dancing, dancing, dancing all my cares away. Then he tapped and he stitched, for his fingers were bewitched, and he sewed a dream into every seam. Making shoes oh so neat, just like magic on her feet, that he hoped she'd know. That he loved her so But she danced, danced, danced as though she were entranced Like a spinning top All around the shop On her dainty feet She whirled into the street And he heard her say As she danced away Le scarpine per ballare, ballare Balleremo tutto il dì Le scarpine per ballare, ballare, balleremo ancora così. Shoes to set my feet a dancing, dancing, dancing all my cares away. All my cares When the sun and the morning peeps over 
heart fills with gladness when I hear the trill of the birds in the treetops on Mockingbird Hill. Tra la la, tootity dee dee, it gives me a thrill to wake up in the morning to the mockingbird's trill. Tra la la. with those two, aren't we? That first one was The Gaylords with The Little Shoemaker. That was a big hit in 1954. And we followed that up with Mockingbird Hill by Les Paul and Mary Ford. And that was a big hit in 1951. So if you remember those, then you are collecting Social Security. And if you're not, you're leaving money on the table because you've been qualified for quite a while. I was in Chicago, and 20 years ago, a youngster was growing up in a place called, believe it or not, Mount Airy, North Carolina. In 1942, Andy Griffith was just 16 years old. Even at that tender age, it was apparent that his name would one day be up in lights. Andy Griffith's first public performance was on the stage of the Mount Airy High School when he recited his prize-winning essay. I appreciate it. (laughs) My prize-winning essay, The Discovery of America by Andy Griffith. (laughs) A long time ago, over in the old country, over there there in Italy, they lived this sailor, and his name was Christopher Columbus, and he was a navigator. Now, you know what a navigator is. That's the fellow that tells you where to go. He believed that the world was round, and he had this tattoo on his arm to prove it. And it was an anchor, and on the top it said mother, and on the bottom it said the world is round. (laughs) And everybody thought he was a nut. They used to sit around in front of the barber shop and say, here comes old crazy Chrissy. (laughs) 
says, let's get him to tell us how the world's round. Say, hell, crazy Chrissy, how's the old round world treating you? And then they'd giggle, see. And he'd just show him his tattoo to shut him up. Well, it happened he was planning this trip around the world anyhow, because he never had been to camp or anything. <laughs> and he, he, uh, he, he went over to see the king and queen of Spain to get the money to finance the trip. And their names was Ferdinand and Isabella. Their mamas named them that because they never did like them much anyway. <laughs> and, and Isabella, she thought Columbus was crazy too, but she always did like sailors. And so, well, when, when he got done telling about how the world was round, she says, Bella, Bella. <laughs> that means nice, nice. And she says, Ferdinand, what you think of it? And Ferdinand, he was looking up the ceiling, trying to act like he wasn't listening. She says, Ferdinand, I say, what you think of it? He kept looking up the ceiling. She says, Ferd, says, what you think of it? He says, I think there's a lot of flies in the castle today. <laughs> Somebody must have left one of the windows open in the turret. And so, and so she says, don't pay no attention to him, Columbus. She says, let's mean you go in the counting room. And they went in there, and she says, <clears throat> she says, I'll give you the money if you'll let me see your tattoo. <laughs> and, so, and, so he, and so he showed it to her, see? And she started to touch it, and he says, don't touch it where it says mother. So, and so she give him the money, she give him the money, and he bought the ships and sailed across the Atlantic and discovered America, Columbus did. Which only goes to prove, if you got a dream in your heart and a tattoo on your arm, someday they may name a city in Ohio after you. I appreciate it, and good night. Be seated. Everybody say amen. 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 Now, before we start, I got two announcements I want to read off to you. The deacons wish that whoever keeps writing, meet me in the basement on the back of the hymn books, would cut it out because everybody that goes down there tracks mud all over the church. <laughs> Amen. And the deacons also wish that whoever keeps putting the frog in the baptismal pool would cut that out because everybody's getting warts from it. <laughs> everybody say Amen. 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 Now, preacher went a hunting. It was on a Sunday morning. Now, coast was again his religion, but he took his gun along. He shot himself some very fine quail and one old measly high. And then on his way returning home, he met a great big grizzly bear. Well, that bear marched out in the middle of the road, and he walks to the preacher, you see. Well, the preacher, he got so excited, he clumb a persimmon tree. Well, the bear, he sat down upon the ground, and the preacher climbed out on a limb. He cast his eyes to the God in the skies, and these words he says to him. Oh, Lord, didn't you deliver Daniel from the lion's den? Also delivered Jonah from the belly of the whale and then the three Hebrew children from the fiery furnace, so the good book do declare. Well, oh, Lord, if you can't have me, for goodness sakes, don't you have that bear? Yeah. Well, that preacher set up in that tree, some say that hit us all night. Along about daybreak, he says, oh, Lord, if you don't have that bear, then you're going to see one awful fight. Well, just as he said it, the limb let go, and the preacher, he come floating down. Oh, it was a sight to see him just before he hit the ground. He struck old earth a cut and right and left. He did put up a pretty good fight. Before he could do much, that bear grabbed him, squeezed him a little too tight. Well, the preacher, he lost his hunting knife, but the bear held on with a vim. So one more time, he cast his eyes to the God in the skies, and these words he says to him. Oh, 
Oh, Lord, didn't you deliver Daniel from the lion's den? Also delivered Jonah from the belly of the whale and then the three Hebrew children from the fiery furnace, so the good book do declare. Well, oh, Lord, if you can't help me, for goodness sakes, don't you have that bad. Remember when Andy Griffith used to do comedy? That was, of course, before the Andy Griffith show with Ronnie Howard as a little boy, Opie. But yeah, he used to do comedy albums. He did a lot of funny stuff. That first clip you heard about the um, him reading his essay before the high school, that was uh, done on the Gary Moore television show back in the 50s. And then The Preacher and the Bear was uh, off of one of his comedy albums. And I'm sorry, I don't have the name of it right in front of me. But anyway... Andy Griffith, uh, that's how he got his start. Something familiar. Something peculiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Ah! Something appealing. Something appalling. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Nothing with kings. Nothing with crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Situation, no complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Ready tomorrow, comedy tonight. Well, this week on our comedy corner, we're going to visit Jack Benny and the whole Benny gang out there in Beverly Hills. And this one was originally broadcast on 920 of 1946. And this was apparently the week, or at least the time period, when both uh, Phil Harris and Dennis Day got their own radio shows. And this episode is all about Jack being upset. One uh, word of warning at the very end of this show, the very end, for some reason it got cut off. So I apologize for that ahead of time. I was trying to edit it out, but it just wouldn't work very well, so I just left it alone. So here we go from 920 of 46, the Jack Benny Show. And Jack's mad because Dennis and uh, Phil have their own shows. Here you go. The Jack Benny Program. Just sit there, Benny, and keep your trap shut. Yeah, one false move and we'll slug you. But, fellas, please, untie me. My program is on. I should be there. I'll lose my job if I miss my first broadcast. You're going to miss them all, Benny. What? You ain't going to drive us nuts anymore. For 15 years, we've been listening to that. Hello again. This is Jack Benny talking. <laughs> well, we've had enough of it, see? Yeah, let's bump them off. No, 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 no. Please, please don't kill me. I don't want to die. Spare my life. I'll make it worth your while. I'll give you each $10. <laughs> Don't, don't kill me. Go ahead, Joe. Let him have it. Wait a minute. We ain't had no fun. Let's torture him first. Okay. I'll burn him with my cigarette. No, 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 no. no don't burn me. Don't burn me. Don't. What kind of a cigarette? <laughs> a lucky strike. Okay, burn me. <laughs> burn me where it'll show. After all, lucky strikes are made of the light that night. That fine, that naturally my light. Let go of my tongue. <laughs> What's the matter with you guys, anyway? All right, Joe, we've stalled long enough. 
Lift them out of their chair and lay them on a table. Okay, but I want to do a neat job on this guy. Hand me my rubber gloves. Uh, here. No, 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 don't, don't tell me. Don't, I'll make it eleven dollars. I mean it. Ready, ready. Knife, knife, axe, axe, poison, poison, rope, rope, knife, knife. You've got that already. Thanks, thanks. Please, fellas. Gun, gun, bullet, bullet, bullet. atomic bomb, atomic bomb. What? Give it to him. <laughs> you, Rochester. Yeah. Gee, see what a nightmare I just had. I was with two fellas, two of them. What a horrible dream. Did you get stuck with the check again? <laughs> no, no, nothing like that. I dreamt I was held captive by a couple of thugs. They're going to keep me from going back on the air. It was terrible. It must have been, boss. You look pale. Sick. Let me see your tongue. Ah. Uh. Mmm, fingerprints. <laughs> That's funny. There shouldn't be. You wore rubber gloves. What'd you say? Oh, nothing, nothing. You weren't there. Doggone, boss. That sure must have been a realistic dream. Look how you thrashed around in the bed. Yeah. You even pulled an arm off your teddy bear. <laughs> Darn it. And I've had it ever since I was 30. <laughs> what a nightmare. Seems like I always dream like that before an opening broadcast. Well, I better start getting dressed. Oh. Rochester, I told you to shorten my nightgown. <laughs> Why didn't you? I was going to, boss, but I hated to cut those rosebuds off the bottom. <laughs> Well, get the car, Rochester, and as soon as I get dressed, we'll go to the studio. Yes, sir. Drive carefully, Rochester. I'm nervous. You know how it is before an opening broadcast. What are you worrying about, boss? You've been on the radio 15 years. Well? They ain't found out by now. They ain't never going to find out. <laughs> I guess now, but take it easy anyway. I don't want to have a lot of... Rochester, when you come to an intersection, blow your horn. I can't. The rubber bulb is broken. Well, then put it in your mouth and blow it. But Trilla won't let me. (laughs) Anyway, here we are at NBC. Want to come in and watch the show, Rochester? No, thanks, boss. I'll sit here and listen to it on the radio. Okay. The earphones are in the glove compartment. (laughs) Here's the key. Good luck, boss. Thanks. Take back your samba. Hi, your rumba. Hi, your conga. Hi, yi, yi. Take back your samba. I beg your pardon, Mr. Benny. Yes? Uh, May I have your autograph, please? My autograph? Certainly. Uh, Would you mind signing it in this pail of water? I want to try out my new pen. Sure, just a minute. I'll pull up my sleeve. There you are. Thank you. You're welcome. Take back your rumba, honey, your samba, honey. See, those pens are becoming popular. 
Maybe I ought to do some jokes about them on my program. Nah, the public isn't ready for it yet. <laughs> hey, back your samba high, your rumba high, your conga high. Hiya, Don. Well, hello, Jack. Well, well, well. <laughs> Well, Don, we'll be on the air in a few minutes. Yes, sir. How does it feel getting back in the groove again, Jack? Well, to tell you the truth, uh, Don, I'm a little excited. I mean, I feel good, but I'm, I don't know, I got a nervous stomach. I know just how you feel, Jack. I, I got a nervous stomach, too. Well, you're just about 30 inches more nervous than I am. <laughs> but you'll be all right. See, Don, have you got everything all set for your part of the program? You know, just the way you want it? I sure have, Jack. And I took the liberty of hiring a quartet to work with me during the commercials. A quartet? For the commercial? Oh, I knew That's you'd like novel. it. So I'll tell you what I did, Jack. I put them under contract for eight weeks, and it will cost you only $500 a week. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Why, yes. I mean, yes, yes. <laughs> but, Don, that quartet must be sensational for that kind of money. Oh, they are, Jack. This will start a new style in radio. Talking commercials with a big vocal background. You'll be crazy about it. I know, but $500... A week for eight weeks. Well, if it's as good as you say, Don, it might be worth it. Uh, how much time have we got before we go on the air? Oh, about five minutes. I'll have the orchestra warm up. I'll be right out. Okay. Take back your samba. Hi, your rumba. Hi, your conga. $500 for a quartet. Hi, yi, yi. <laughs> I can't keep moving. Hi, my chassis. Hi, any longer. Hi, yi. with Barry Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it has been said that Jack Benny has made more people laugh than any other comedian who ever lived. And now we bring you the man who said it, Jack Benny! <laughs> Thank you. 
you, thank you, thank you. Hello again, this is Jack Benny talking, and Don, for our first show, that was a very nice introduction, but I, I wish you wouldn't make people think that I'm conceited enough to say that I made more people laugh than any other comedian. <laughs> I mean, it, it's true, but I didn't say it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Don, here I am starting my 50th, my 15th year... <laughs> year in radio. <laughs> and Don, just think, for 13 of those years, you've been with me. I know, Jack, and I'll always be grateful. Well. Why, when I started out with you 13 years ago, I, I was just a little nobody. Yeah. And look at me today. A big fat slob. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't thank me, Don. I'd have done the same for anybody. <laughs> And, Don, the nice part of our association is that it's always been so pleasant and happy. I mean, I don't know. I like just being around you, especially when you laugh. You know, I haven't heard you laugh for 17 weeks. Go ahead, Don, laugh. Oh, no, no, Jack, you, you better Come on, me. Don, come on, laugh. <laughs> come on, Don. <laughs> well, come on. Don't laugh some more. Come on, Don. No, Don, hard, real hard. Harder, Don, harder. <laughs> Now, to you people sitting in the audience, if you ever want to get in here again, that's what I mean. <laughs> and, Don, I know it's a little early in the show, but I want to hear this idea you have for the commercial, you know, with the quartet. You know, after all, it's $500. I'm, are the boys ready? Oh, yes, they're still rehearsing, but they'll be here in just a few minutes. Good, good. I can... Oh, well, hello, Mary. Hello, Jack. Hello, Don. Hello. I haven't seen you in four months. Let me look at you. Gee, you look swell. You look wonderful. Different. What have you done to yourself? Well, Jack, this summer I really took it easy and I gained 12 pounds. 12 pounds? Let me look at you again. Mmm. Yes, sir. Mmm. Mmm. And your face looks fuller, too. See if I can still get my arm around. Oh, Jack, don't be so silly. Now, come here, Mary. Come here, Jack. He's got you now. Oh, Jack, now stop it. Ooh, you're so strong. Come here. Come here. Give me a kiss. Jack, you're hurting me. Where'd you get those muscles? Eastern Columbia, Broadway at night. <laughs> now, come on. It's a swell department store. Come here, Mary. Come on. Now, give me a kiss. A nice big one. Oh, all right. All now, right. Come on. There. Gee, <laughs> what a kiss. What's come over you? I don't know. I'm nervous. Maybe it's the quiver you like. <laughs> <laughs> Eddie, Mary, wait, Mary, Mary, uh, tell me, what did you do all summer? Well, I worked most of the time. I got laryngitis and made a lot of money. You got laryngitis and made a lot of What did you do? I tiptoed into radio studios and whispered Martha Ivers. <laughs> oh, is that you? Mary, are you glad to be back on the program again? I sure am. I am, too. But you know, Mary, I must admit I'm a little nervous about the opening show. Jack, if you think you're nervous, what about Phil Harris? He has two opening shows today. Well, as a rule, I'm not... What? 
<laughs> what did you say? Uh, Phil has two opening shows, yours and the Fitch bandwagon. He has his own program. Phil has his own program? <laughs> Gee, I didn't know that. Hmm. That's gratitude for you. The least he could have done is let me know. Could have dropped me a postcard. I called you up. No, my phone's disconnected during the summer. <laughs> His own program, Phil. Gosh, what in the world can Phil do for a full half hour? I don't know, but if he adds two more choruses to that's what I like about the South, he's in. <laughs> I can't get over it. So Phil has his own program. Do you mind? Of course not. I like to see people get ahead. I want everyone to be a success. In fact, I'd even like to see Dennis Day get his own show. He has. What? <laughs> Mary, did I hear you correctly? If that thing in your ear is connected, you did. <laughs> Mary, this is... <laughs> Mary, this is no time to be funny. You're kidding about Dennis, aren't you? No, he starts his own program Thursday night for Colgate. You're not mad, are you? Well, of course I'm not mad. I'd be in fine shape if I let little things like that bother me. What do you think keeps me looking so young and strong? Eastern Columbia, Broadway at night. <laughs> I mean, besides that. Anyway, with me, it's just a matter of principle, that's all. If Phil and Dennis feel that they can go on their own shows and get laughs, it's... Say, it's, it's all right with me. I don't care. Say, perhaps the little chicks feel that the... that the nest that I built is too small. And that they... <laughs> But they no longer need the sheltering wing of the mother hen. You lay an egg, I'm going to punch you right in the nose. <laughs> Mary, I was just Well, being... Jack, Jack, we can do the commercial now. The quartet's ready. Oh, good, good. Mary, I want you to hear this. This is a new commercial Don thought of with a quartet behind it. I got him tied up for eight weeks at $500 a week. Go ahead, Don, let's hear it. Okay, ready, boys? Let's go. L.S., M.F.T., L.S., M.F.T., Yes, sir, you bet. Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. Yes, Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, in a cigarette, it's the tobacco that counts. And Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. So round, so firm, so fully packed, so free and easy on the draw. That naturally mild tobacco. So for real deep down smoking enjoyment, smoke that smoke of fine tobacco, Lucky Strike. For this, I'm paying $500? Yes, ladies and gentlemen, quality of product is essential to continuing success, and Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Don, is that all? Yes. For that, I'm paying $500 a week for eight weeks? Stand aside, Don. I want to talk to this quartet. Listen, fellas, if you think I'm going to pay you $500 a week just for that, you're crazy. Now cut that out! And get out of here. Don, I thought you had something... Hiya, else. Jackson. Hello, folks. Don't feel low. You'll soon hear Harris on his very own show, and hallelujah. Yes, Lay that beautiful old program applause on me. Leave me know it. Make me know it. Phil. 
Phil, Mary told me all about it. And I'd like to have a little talk with you about your own show. Sorry, Jack, I ain't using no stooges. <laughs> I don't want to talk to you about that. Yet. I only want to know one thing. You've been with me for nine years. Why did you go out and take another show? M-O-N-E-Y. M-O-N-E-Y. <laughs> so that's why. Well, that's the trouble with you, Phil. All you think about is money. Women and money. Well, I don't know of a better parlay. Do you, bub? <laughs> I knew I didn't have that nightmare for nothing. Hello, Donzie. Oh, hello, Phil. Hiya, Livy. Hello, Phil. You look great. Doesn't he, Jack? Yeah, yeah, he looks swell. Did you go away for the summer, Phil? Yeah, I sure did, Livy. We were there, just the two of us, and we really had a wonderful time. Just the two of you? Who'd you go with? Ray Milan. Oh. <laughs> you and Ray Milan? Yeah, we lost all of July and part of August. <laughs> Of all the good you're going to do me, you could have lost September and October, too. Now, now, Mr. Benny, please don't be facetious. Oh, fine. Phil, where'd you get a word like that? My uncle died and left it to me. Oh, congratulations. But you know, Jackson, it's mighty good to see the old gang again, and I can't begin to... Say, who are these four guys? I told you to get out of here! Quartet, $500. Eight weeks yet. Where's Dennis? It's time for a song. He's not here yet. Well, I saw him this morning. He was going to rehearse for his own program. His own program. His own program. What should I do with my program? No coaching from the audience. Oh, <laughs> Well, I'm going to call Dennis's house and find out why he's not here. Operator. Operator. Oh, Mabel. What is it, Gertrude? B is flashing. It must be Mr. Benny. Oh, yeah. I wonder what Notorious wants now. <laughs> I'll find out. Yes, Mr. Benny. Who? Dennis Day. I'll try and get him for you. Gee, Mabel, don't it feel strange getting back to work after vacation? I'll say, but I really enjoyed myself. I spent two lovely weeks at Lake Winnipehakamuka in the Pines. <laughs> It sure was invigorating. Where did you go, Gertrude? I spent my two weeks in the mountains at Ginsburg's Rest. <laughs> and what did you do? Ginsburg let me alone, so I rested. I had a wonderful time. Every day I went swimming. Look, here's a picture of me in my bathing suit. Oh, boy, what a picture. Doesn't even look like you. Where'd you get those beautiful curves? Eastern Columbia, Broadway at night. <laughs> oh, what do you know? Operator, operator. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Benny. Dennis Day does not answer. Okay. How do you like that? It's a fine program. You think at least everybody in my cast would show up on time. Who's late, Mr. Benny? Dennis Day. Should have been here an hour ago. Why don't you call him? I did. I just tried... Dennis! Where have you been? <laughs> Dennis, I just tried to get you on the phone to find out that why you... Hey, wait a minute, kid. 
You're soaking wet. Is it raining out? No, a man asked me for my autograph and I fell in. You're so nervous. It's not your own show yet, you know. That's Get nervous on your own show. <laughs> Listen, Dennis, there's something I want to talk to you about. Why did you go out and get your own program without consulting me? Well... And after all I've done for you. I found you when you were just a kid. I groomed you for radio. I gave you your big chance. I let you sing on the air every Sunday. I've been doing this for your kid for, for eight years. Now, why did you go out and take another show? I was hungry. <laughs> you silly boy. Why didn't you tell me you were hungry? Yeah, Mother Hen Benny could have laid you a couple of eggs. Mary, there's no time to be facetious. Now, Dennis, Phil, stop taking bows. I knew that word before you did. You knew it before Webster did. Yes, yes, all right. Now, Dennis, I want to tell you something. And, Phil, this goes for you, too. You can all have your own shows if you want to. If necessary, I'll get myself a new cast, new people. People who can get laughs, like, like the mad Russian, like Senator Claghorn. Somebody, I said somebody said Claghorn. I said it, and I'm going to get... Out with it, son, out Listen, with it. I'm going to get... Your mouth wide open, but your tongue's on Listen, the Listen, I'm going to get... That's why you can't express yourself. Harold, that is. Oh, what's the use? What's the use? This is a fine, how do you do? How do you do? Janet, stop it! And you four guys, too. Mm. Oh, for heaven's sake. Go ahead and sing, Dennis. I'm going home. Come on, Mary. I'll drive you home. The rose must remain with the sun and the rain For its lovely promise
Take it easy, Rochester. Nice song Dennis picked for his first show. To each his own show. <laughs> Fine season I'm going to have. Phil's got his own show. Dennis has his own show. I don't know why they had to go out and get their own programs anyway. Well, Jack, what are you so mad at them for? Don Wilson has four shows and you're not mad at him. He pays me commission. <laughs> Rochester, leave Miss Livingston off first and then take me home. Yes, sir. And take it easy, Rochester, will you? Oh, Jack, stop being so nervous and upset. Why wouldn't I be upset? Nobody thinks of me. Phil has his own show. Dennis has his own show. My writers are still stranded on the gambling ship. <laughs> Stuck with a lousy quartet. This can go on week after week, month after month, year after year. That's radio for you. Enough to drive a guy crazy. Well, then why don't you quit? I will not. <laughs> Every year the same thing. Say, boss, are you going out for dinner or are you going to stay home? No, I think I'll go out. Oh, with Miss Livingston? No, no, she said she was going to bed early. Well, I'll call up and get a date. Hello? National Broadcasting Company. Hello, Mabel. No, this is Gay Trish. Oh, let me talk to Mabel. I'm sorry, she left... This is NBC, the National Broadcasting... Always loved Jack Benny. I've said it before, but my dad was a huge Benny fan. And, of course, we would uh, listen to the Benny show every week on radio. I, I still remember that a little bit. But then, of course, when he came on television, it was just a staple in the household. Benny, of course, influenced a, a lot of people, a lot of comedians. Uh, Johnny Carson admitted that a lot of his uh, comedy was influenced by Benny. And another one that was uh, really noticeable once once he said it is uh, Kelsey Grammer on Frasier. Uh, he mentioned that he did uh, uh, direct steals from Jack Benny, and he admitted it. And why not? And it's true, if you ever watch that show, which won so many Emmys, uh, his double takes are, are strictly from Benny. A great comedian has a lot of influence on a lot of other comedians. You ask how come I call my old mule Ruth, when in fact the solemn truth is that he's a Jack and not no Jenny, that's for sure. Well, there's no call for you to know, but since you asked, I'll tell you so. Just settle back and heed to what I say. It started in 1861, the war, well, it had just begun to be a war. I wasn't much, so to speak, a mule skinner, not one to seek fame or fortune, especially in no war. Now, every man's got a pride, most times it's deep inside about his job, and mine was attending mules. My favorite was the long-eared Jenny. Now, I reckon you'll think that I'm a ninny, cause I loved her just like I'd love my mother. She was faithful, stout, and she was smart, and friend, she had lots of heart. If she'd been a man, I'd have loved her like a brother. Well, 
We'd fought back with all we had, but still the war was going bad. For in 64, Schofield hit us Tennessee boys hard. And just 30 miles away at dawn near Spring Hill on early morn, five generals that bore Confederate gray had chitlins and bacon and eggs and grits. Lord, they'd planned to give them fits, but the tide of war just went the other way. The five brave men that led Hood's charge was met by artillery barrage that mowed them down just like so much hay. Now somebody had to get them men, and by golly, I can't remember when I've ever been so proud as I was that day. Just take old Ruth, the captain said, and when it got dark, I slowly led my Jenny to the Harpeth River's bank. I found them young boys in gray, and when on Ruth's back they stiffly lay, I started back, but then my spirit sort of sank. A dad blamed sentry opened fire, and them Yankees did conspire to add me to their list of casualties. Old Ruth, she just plowed along, not a-listening to the bullet song, just brushed them off like they was a swarm of bees. Well, somehow we got back that night, and I thank God I was all right. I'd brought them boys from where they was a-laying. I hadn't even got a scratch, so I lit my pipe, and when the match flared up, I seen old Ruth was just a swaying. Blood was running down her side. My throat choked up, and then I cried, and she looked at me, and her eyes was soft and brown. She seemed to say, now don't cry for me. We had a job to do, you see. And then old Ruth just seemed to slide right down. There's a marker I put on her grave It reads, here lies a mule who gave her life And that's the truth Now every mule I'll ever own Will bear your name So be it known While I'm alive They'll always be a Ruth Yeah They'll always be a Ruth Isn't that pretty? That was Ken Curtis, who, of course, went on to play Festus on uh, the television episodes of Gunsmoke after Chester made his departure in the form of Dennis Weaver on the television show. And I thought that would just kind of get us in the mood for Gunsmoke.
Time for Gunsmoke, everybody, and I've got a really good episode for you tonight. This one originally aired on CBS on November the 6th, 1954, and it's entitled Smoking Out the Beatles. Interestingly, this was done on television exactly one year later, almost to the date. I think it was November the 5th, 1955. Just exactly one day less than one year later, it appeared on television, but they renamed it to Smoking Out the Nolans. And if you listen to the story of Gunsmoke, which we're going to be talking about in just a few minutes at the end of of this episode, Norm MacDonald never exactly understood why they made that change. Because smoking out the Beatles is just another great usage of names by John Meston, who was the writer of this script. This one has a really fun opening scene, one of the most compelling opening scenes of any Gunsmoke. Clay Young walks into Matt Dillon's office. He says, Marshall, I got bad news for you. Matt says, well, nobody ever comes in here with good news, Clay. No, but what I got might get you killed. And Matt Dillon says, oh, that's so. (laughs) Great opening line. In fact, wonderful dialogue in this. This is about some squatters that uh, are alleged squatters. Some people that are living in a sod hut on Clay's property, and Clay wants them off because he said he did not give them the right to be there. They counter with the fact that they have the legal right to be there, and you can hear the details in the show. But Matt is called on, he is given a court order to evict them. And it's a really difficult thing to do because the uh, sod dugout has no window, and the Beatles are holding them off with gunfire. Listen to the dialogue between Matt and Chester, particularly Chester, (laughs) as they're trying to figure out how to attack this saw dugout. Very funny, and when the scene comes, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So here it is from November the 6th, 1954. This is Gunsmoke and Smoking Out the Beatles. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke.
Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. The transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. And the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Stage from Hayes got here, Mr. Dillon. Oh, that's good, Chester. There wasn't nobody on it, though. Oh, were you expecting somebody? No, sir, but that ain't the point. Oh? How can they run a stage line without no passengers? <laughs> well, I don't know, Chester, but the fewer people come to Dodge, the less trouble it means. Yes, sir, but if people don't come here, you wouldn't have a job, Mr. Dillon. Oh, you think everybody in Dodge right now is an honest, law-abiding citizen, huh? Oh, no, sir. Is that what I said? <laughs> Is this the marshal's office? Yeah, I'm the marshal. Come on in, mister. Uh, my name's Pat Clay, marshal. Oh, how do you do? Uh, this is Chester Proudfoot. Chester? Oh. Marshal, I got bad news for you. Well, nobody ever came here with good news, as far as I can remember. But what I got, well, it might get you killed. Oh, is that so? Now, now don't get me wrong. Not by me. No. No, sir, I, I don't shoot people. But you know somebody who does. Jim Beetle, that's who. Jim Beetle? Here, Marshal, read this. They told me to bring it to you. Now, this looks like a court order. Who signed it? Judge Miller. You know him? Yeah, I know him. Yeah, so Jim Beetle's squatting on some of your land you own up at Stone Point, is that it? Him and his wife, Marshal. You see, they moved into a sod house I built, and they won't leave. Well, how come they did that? Where were you? Well, to tell the truth, I let him. I didn't need it for a while, and he was homeless, and so I took pity on him. But I told him only for two months, and it's four months now. They won't leave, Marshal, and they say they'll shoot me if I ever come near him again. Now you're saying they'll shoot me, too, huh? Where do you meet him, Marshal? You'll see. All right, Clay. I'll ride out there tomorrow. Look at that, Mr. Dillon. What was Clay talking about? A sawed house? That's nothing more than a hut. It ain't even got windows, I can see. Yeah, it isn't much, is it? Hey, there's Beetle's wife now. Just, just come out here. What's she carrying a rifle for? Well, I guess Clay wasn't lying, Chester. I uh, think this is far enough. We'd better get on. <laughs> Miss Beetle? 
Who are you? You know my name. I'm Marshal Dillon, ma'am, from Dodge, and this is Chester Proudfoot. Uh, Pleased to meet you, Miss Beagle. Who are you looking for? Uh, nobody, ma'am. I, uh, I wanted to talk to you and your husband. Is he around? He's inside. Well, would you tell him that we're here? Mr. Beetle? What? Come out here. Don't forget your rifle. Who is that, Claire? Marshal from Dodge. What do you want, Marshal? Beetle, I've got a court order here that says that uh, you've got to move out of that house and off this land. Clay sent you. No, Clay didn't send me. But he got the order, and it's legal. Well, it's my job to carry it out. I don't know nothing about all that. We ain't moving. Look, you can find some land of your own somewhere. Why do you want to squat on somebody else? This is our land. All around Stone Point, here's ours. Bought and paid for. What do you mean, bought and paid for? Forty acres, paid a dollar fifty acre for it. Not more than a land is worth. We throwed in the hut and them hogs to boot. Who did? Who'd you buy it from? Clay's who? Come around now saying we don't own it wants us off of it. I told him last time I'd shoot him if he'd come near here again. Uh, Clay says that he was letting you live here for a while, helping you out. For $60, helping me out? I'm working this land, Marshal. Going to farm me some crops here. It ain't very good land, but we'll make it. Wait, if this is true, where is your deed for the place? Deed? You know, Mr. Beetle, that's that paper Clay gave us when we paid him the money. Oh, that. Well, do you have it? No. Oh, where is it? Well, he took it. What he did? What do you mean, he took it? Well, that was before he got mean about us moving off of here. Here's what happened. A few weeks back, Clay come by, said he'd be neighborly. He'd take a paper into Dodge and fix it up in the land office first. Something like that. Anyways, he took it. I see. Then your deed hadn't been registered. Marshal, I can't even read. I don't know what it was. Well, do you have any proof that you paid him the money? I don't need no proof. Other than I'm here and I'm going to stay. Huh. Where did you get the $60, Beetle? Work for it. Where's anybody get money less than they steal it? Lee stole mine. This land ain't worth twenty dollars. It's poor land. Then why did you buy it? Oh, I don't know. Maybe kind of like the name Stone Point. But I ain't moving, Marshal. Not for Clay, nor for you, nor for nobody. Well, if you can't prove it's yours, you're gonna have to move, Beetle. Marshal. My old woman's as good a rifle shot as I am. Practice every day. You don't know if I'm lying to you or not, do you, Marshal? No, I don't. Well, maybe you'll never know. But we ain't moving. Not alive, we ain't. All right, Beetle, I'll see what I can find at the land office. If your deed's been registered, well, then you're okay. You don't make no mind to me about that, Marshal. Or about who's lying or who ain't, neither. But we'll kill us anybody comes a-bothering. Now, you get on back to Dodge. And you stay there. That's no use talking, Chester. Let's go. You tell Clay the same thing. I'll shoot him on sight. 
Marshal Dillon will be back, Chester. Well, he went over to the land office, Clay, looking up Beetle's deed. But he ought to be back most any time now. I should have told you them Beetles are nothing but liars. They sure fooled me when I first met them. Mm. They are kindly hard to get along with, I'll say that. I'd do it again, though. You would? I mean, help people out just because I got in trouble with them don't mean I ain't never going to help nobody again. I ain't that small a man. Mm. Oh, hello, Marshal. What'd you find out? Oh, there's nothing at the land office. Well, of course there ain't. I went up to see Judge Miller. He's riding circuit through here now. What'd he say, Mr. Dillon? Well, the way things stand, the Beatles have got to move. Well, I can't feel sorry for them the way they acted. Uh, Chester. Yes, sir? I want you to ride out there and tell them they got a week. One week. Okay, Mr. Dillon. Well, that's settled. I, I sure hate to put you to all this trouble, Marshal, but a man can't lose his land. No, no, of course not. Even if it ain't the best land around. Well, I'll be going now. I'll, I'll see you next week after they've got off. Yeah, sure, Clay. So long. So long. Uh, that ain't going to be easy, Mr. Dillon. No, it isn't, Chester. Out in that flat country, you sure can't sneak up on nobody. And Clay says that sod hut's built like a fort. It's got no windows, and the door's four inches thick, and with a big bar on the inside, he says there's no way anybody busting in there. Yeah, it's solid, all right. Yes, sir. Uh, Mr. Dillon, maybe Clay's lying. Maybe they did buy it from him. Oh, that's a hard way to make $60, Chester. Sell some land and then get a hold of the deed and tear it up and then go to court and so on. Yes, sir, it sure don't make sense. Especially since they all admit the land's not much good. Well, somebody's lying. Yeah, but there's no way of proving who. Anyway, the law's on Clay's side, Chester. And I'll go with you. We'll tell them one week. And I hope nobody gets killed in this. I was supposed to meet Chester here. I thought I was in the wrong place when I saw you. I got tired of the Texas Trail, Matt. Got the elephants and might change my luck. Are you going to work here from now on? From now on's a long time, Matt. Yes, Chester, just came in. Huh? Oh, yeah. Well, I'll give him time for a beer. I was talking to him this afternoon. He says you're taking on the Beatles tomorrow. Yeah. They've had their week. <laughs> From what I hear of them, I sure don't envy you that job. No, I'm not looking forward to it, Kitty. I met Jim Beetle once. He's a tough old turkey. Well, I wish I knew whether he's a liar or not. Hard to tell with a man like that. He's a darn thin brain. Well, he's still smart enough to be a liar. So's Clay. 
Yeah? Well, he's no killer, though. But I'll bet it wouldn't keep old Beetle awake night shooting somebody. No, I don't think it would. But why all this trouble over some land that neither of them think is any good? Maybe they're both crazy. <laughs> you know, I'm beginning to think they are, Kitty. <laughs> hey. Hey, what's the matter, Kitty? You want some water? Huh? I'll be all right. <laughs> well, what started that? I don't know, Matt. <laughs> Suddenly got a whiff or something. Like, like breathing the fumes off a match. <clears throat> you know? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I know. Kitty, that's the best cough you ever had. Well, I'm glad you like it. No, I mean, for me it was. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, Chester's finished his beer. We got some work to do. Uh, good luck with the Beatles tomorrow, Matt. I think we'll have it, Kitty. Thanks to you. So long. I sure do wish there was a moon tonight, Mr. Dillon. A man can get shot in the moonlight, Chester. Well, the Beatles ain't gonna shoot us if we can't even find them. Well, it's right ahead of us. We better go afoot from here. Yes, sir. Oh, uh, you got everything, Chester? Uh, got the bag of sulfur and saddle blanket, Mr. Dillon. Okay, now here's what we'll do. We'll sneak around back of the hut, and I'll help you up onto the roof. Well, that ridge pole might not prove stout enough for me and all that sod on it, too. What if it busts through, Mr. Dillon? Well, if it does, we're in trouble. You mean I'm in trouble? You're lighter than I am, Chester. Okay, sir. Now, there are only two openings in that hut, the door and the stovepipe. Mm. So far, they is. Look, if it's medals you want, Chester, you better go back to the Army. Well, forevermore, can a man complain just a little? Yeah, sure, but later, huh? We're wasting time. Now, when you get up on the roof, you crawl over to the stovepipe and pour that bag of sulfur down it. The coals on their stove will do the rest. And then I'll cover the pipe with this saddle blanket and just make it worse for him, hmm? That's right. I'll be waiting near the door for him. But you jump down and be ready to help me in case they come out fighting. This is going to make them awful mad, Mr. Dillon. You know what burning sulfur does to you. Well, I know what it does to Kitty. Well, you all set? Much as I'll ever be. I helped Chester up onto the roof and then moved around to the door and waited. My biggest worry was whether the Beatles would have time and think fast enough to come out armed and ready for trouble. The only thing I was sure of was that they'd come out. Sulfur fumes could drive a she-bear away from her young. I was thinking about that when I heard them inside. <laughs> Okay, Chester, they left their rifles. Come on down. Beetle, you and your wife stay right there. It's a marshal clear. What the hell was on the roof? Clara is getting a horse. You don't have to run. Nobody's gonna hurt you. Come on, hurry. Come on out of there, Chester. 
You hurt? Well, I had my leg caught, but I got loose. I knew that doggone thing wouldn't hold. You're limping. How bad are you hurt? No, I just bruised it. It ain't nothing. Where's the beetles? That's them. You mean they got away? Well, we weren't trying to arrest them, Chester. All I wanted was to get them outside unarmed so I could make them pack up and move out. <laughs> well, they moved out. What with that roof all busted in? Oh, ain't it a mess? Uh, we'll carry out what stuff of theirs we can and load it on that wagon. They can pick it up and dodge. Tonight? No. We'll camp here tonight. Do it in the morning. I don't know about them beetles, Mr. Dillon. They ain't gonna quit this easy. Uh, maybe not. But at least we got them out in the open. I'm thinking it was more comfortable when they wasn't out in the open, Mr. Dillon. Help me watch Front Street, Matt. <laughs> okay, Doc, I'll join you for a while. Yeah, yeah. Ah. yeah. Well, you got nothing better to do than sit out on the hotel porch here and stare at your fellow man? Fellow man? Oh, not my fellow man. All I have in common with most of these thieves and scallywags is fingers and toes and bones and skin and things like that. <laughs> I thought doctors were supposed to like people. Oh, yeah, well, who told you that? Some hard rock miner? What does a miner know about doctors? Ah, uh, you make it tough, Doc. I make what tough? Talk. Oh, I do. Oh, I make... Oh, I see. Well, I heard about how you talked the Beatles into getting off Clay's land out at Stone Point. Oh, you did real fine there. Well, we got them off anyway. They came into Dodge for their belongings this afternoon. Yes, I saw them, too. Oh, those poor... Oh, they, what are they going to do now? I'll find some land of their own, maybe. You don't believe their story? I'm an agent of the law, Doc. It doesn't matter whether I believe it or not. The law demands proof. And they didn't have any. Mm. Oh, I understand, man. What? That's right down the street, Matt. Yeah. You better come, too, Doc. Yes. It's a little early in the evening for shooting, isn't it? Who told you that, Doc? Some hard rock miner? Uh, oh, well, I guess you're right, Matt. Yes. Well, anyway, maybe it's just some cowboy trying to bring down the moon. Well, there isn't any moon. Besides, there's a, there's a crowd up there, too. What happened, Justin? Oh, I seen the whole thing. I wasn't 30 feet off. I was standing back there talking to Mr. Green about what his happened, rope window. Justin? Uh, yes, it's Clay, Mr. Dillon. Oh. You better get up there, Doc. Looked like he was shot bad. Who shot him? Jim Beetle. He walked right up to him on the street there and pulled out a gun and shot him twice. Uh, where's Beetle now? That first alley, he ran up there. Doc, go take care of Clay. Oh, oh yes, yes, I'm going, I'm going. You come with me, Chester. Yes, sir. Yeah. All right, you wait here, Chester. Unless he gets me. Okay, Mr. Dillon. Closer, Marshal. You killed one man, Beetle. That's enough. Kill me a lot of men if I have to. Beetle. Throw your gun out. I told you, don't you come no closer. 
I have to, Beetle. Wait there, Chester. You get him, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, I got him. Find a couple of men and go take him up to Doc's, will you? Well, here's Doc now. Yes, oh, somebody else been killed here? Beetle, Doc. He tried to shoot Mr. Dillon. Clay's dead, huh, Doc? Yes, he was killed instantly, Matt. Two bullets right through his chest. Well, I guess the law wasn't much help to him after all. Well, you did what you could, Matt. Uh, Marshal Dillon? Yeah. My name's Keller, Marshal. I'm an agent for the Santa Fe Railroad. Okay, Keller, but if you want to talk, come to see me at my office later. A couple of men have just been killed here. It's Clay I want to talk about, Marshal. Oh? Yeah. His land out of Stone Point. Uh, what's your interest in Stone Point? The railroad's planning ahead, Marshal. We want to build a station at Stone Point. I came out here to close the deal with Clay. Close the deal. You mean you've already talked to Clay about this? Oh, over a month ago, Marshal. Yeah, he said he owned all but 40 acres and was going to get that back. Oh, I see. Well, we didn't want to buy his land. All we wanted from him was a free lease for where the station will stand. Well, that was fair enough, don't you think? The station there, Stone Point land, will become pretty valuable. Property. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, you come see me at noon tomorrow, Mr. Keller, and I'll, uh, I'll have the rightful owner of that land in my office. But I don't understand. At see, noon we... tomorrow, huh? Oh, okay, Marshal. Good night. Chester. Yes, sir. Let's go find Miss Beetle and tell her that Stone Point belongs to her. I know it's too late, and I don't suppose it'll do any good, but... I want to tell her how sorry I am. Yes, sir. That'd make me feel better, too, Mr. Dillon. Gunsmoke, transcribed under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were Lawrence Dobkin, Harry Bartell, Jeanette Nolan, and Joe Cranston. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, likes to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Hear Gunsmoke every Saturday, this same time, this same station. 
Hear the great new Perry Como radio show every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, also on CBS Radio. This is the CBS Radio Network. Originally heard on CBS Radio on November the 6th, 1954. The name of that episode was Smoking Out the Beatles on Gunsmoke. Some of the greatest dialogue. Where Chester says, I don't know if that if that roof is stout enough to hold me, Mr. Dillon. He says, well, if it doesn't, we're in trouble. <laughs> Chester says, you mean I'm in trouble. He says, well, there's only one way into that roof, <laughs> Chester. And Chester says, yeah, now there is. <laughs> Oh, it just cracked me up, Matt. Says if you're looking for medals, Chester. Oh, anyway, just great, great, great uh, dialogue. I just love Parley Bear's character of Chester, one of the best. Good morning, Captain. Well, good morning to you. Do you meet another mule skinner? Down on your new one. the Fenderman with yet another big hit from the 50s. That one was entitled Mule Skinner Blues. Well, Chester is waving at me frantically, telling me that we're all out of time, so it's time for me to pick up all of the shows, and we'll carry them back into the vault.
folks, that's going to kick things in the head for another week. But don't worry, we'll be back next week with an archive show and in two weeks with an all-new show. And we'll have more great selections of old-time radio. Going out tonight, we're going to listen to, uh, since we've been doing songs from the 50s, we're going to do a little Buddy Holly. How about that? This is Bob Bro. Till we meet again, I am so glad you stopped by, and I am so glad you met me.